so, like Pastor Rolo said, we'll be preaching through um, the Minor Prophets this summer. So this first um, Wednesday, I've been tasked with preaching an overview of all 12 books of the Minor Prophets. So please pray with me, because <laughs> I have to go through 12 books, so it's pr pretty difficult. So please pray with me as we ask for the Lord help, Lord's help. Our God and Father, we, Lord, we need you, God. Lord, I need you and your people before me need you, O oh God. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit so that I may rightly divide your word, cause your people to see you better, O oh God, and grow in their love for you and their admiration for all that you have done for your people, O oh God. So be with us this night as ever. It's in the holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. So, because it's an overview, I won't be coming from any one particular verse. I'm going to be all over the Bible, so it would probably be better if you have one of the handouts and take notes, because I'm going to be giving you quite a few Bible verses, so it won't be one, any one particular verse that I'll be coming out of in this sermon. Also, um, I'll be doing very little um, like exegetical work. It'll be more broad, so you can get a big idea, a big picture, bird's eye view of what is happening here, okay? So, the 12 prophets, the 12 minor prophets. So when many people think of a prophet, what they usually picture is a bearded psychic with a crystal ball or a Nostradamus-type figure foretelling the future. Or other people have in mind some wild man screaming threats of God's future judgment couched in these weird images that none of us modern people actually understand. Amen? So, what, and, and much of what we hear in our day supports this type of thinking about the prophets. So, pro these, uh, you hear about all these prophecy conferences, or if you go into a Christian bookstore, the most popular books about biblical prophecy usually spend most of the time talking about the fulfillment of some prophetic messages on this big global scale in our day. So usually you hear people talking about blood moons and all this other stuff and where Russia is and the United States is in the Bible. However, when you actually go through and read the, the minor prophets for yourself, what you find is that the prophets were not as interested in our present time as much as they were interested in their time in a future time before ours. Future for them, before us. Okay? So the prophets did most certainly foretell of future events, but most of those events would fall in our, from our perspective, would be history in our perspective. So, for example, the foretelling of the exile into Babylon or the coming of the Messiah are examples of prophecy that would be for the prophets and those, those people of his day for them, it's, it's distant into the future. For us, it's in the past. That make sense to you? So, and we make the mistake of not having that in our head when we read the Minor Prophets. And then what we do is we import the United States of America into those books. So, furthermore, for the, minor, for the 12 Minor Prophets, the role of foretelling the future 
is usually often secondary to the role of forth-telling. That is, preaching the heart of God to the people of God. That's how I'm defining that word, forth-telling. So when we begin to see these two distinctions and hold these two distinctions in our mind, the minor prophets take on an entirely new relevance and show God's grace, long-suffering, and patience toward his stiff-necked, stubborn, and rebellious people. So admittedly, there are many themes that we will see throughout these 12 minor prophets, and we will be surveying over the next 40 minutes or so uh, many of those topics, many of these historical settings, various theological subjects, literary composition, and many unifying themes in these 12 books. And the way we'll do this is, I'm going to do this in four sections, so if you have a handout, you'll see on your handout, it's split up into four sections. The world of the prophets, the work of the prophets, the third section is the words of the prophets, and then the last section is the unity of the prophets. So while we are looking at all of these things, I want to inform you that all this information should ultimately point us to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, even in the Minor Prophets, as the one who fulfills all the messianic prophecies and brings salvation to his, ultimately brings salvation to his people. So if I or any of the men preaching through this sermon series on Wednesdays, on this Wednesday in the summer, if we get lost all off the path, I pray that you, church, do not lose sight of the fact that even in these prophets, we should be seeing Christ in those. Amen? Can I get everybody to do this? Move over here, please. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so this brings us to the first section, the world of the prophets, the world of the prophets. Now, by world of the prophets, what I mean is, is that the world that the prophets live in. Okay, so it's important for us to understand the, the historical context and setting of the prophets because they preached about their times more than they preach about our time. Okay, the lives of the 12 prophets span a period of over um, three centuries, somewhere between 770 B.C. to 430 B.C., and they were prophesying and ministering in some of Israel's most turbulent days. So if you look at that handout, you have a chart. I gave you a little chart there for you to see. And so you can see how the prophets are um, on a timeline, how their ministries, some of them overlap one another, and how they, they fall in relationship to which world power is in charge and which, which uh, set of tribes they were sent to. So the Lord sent prophets to both Israel and Judah during the Assyrian period before the fall of Samaria around 722 B.C. and then sent more prophets to Judah in the Babylonian period before the fall of Jerusalem. And then also the Lord sends post-exile prophets after the people return from exile. So remember after Solomon dies, the nation splits. You have uh, Judah in Israel, and then so you have prophets, the minor prophets, some are sent to Israel, some are sent to Judah, some of them overlap one another, some of them overlap some of the um, major prophets, so it's good to have that timeline in your head so you can see what's going on. So when Israel, that's the northern tribes, separated from the southern tribes, Judah, just after the reign of Solomon, 
the first king, Israel's first king is Jeroboam the first. And he plunged the nation into apostasy. I don't know if you remember when Pastor Rollo was preaching through first kings, he kind of got into this and he set up his own sanctuaries that centered around the worship of golden calves. That's in first kings chapter 12. So then the Bible says this, then Jeroboam set up, I'm sorry, then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of the people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and then they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then these things became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So the reason Jeroboam, he did this, was to keep the people from going down to Jerusalem and giving their loyalties back to the house of David. So in the process, he led Israel away from worship at the place where the Lord had chosen to dwell with his people in the temple. And Israel, the, the northern tribe Israel, would walk this path of apostasy and idolatry for the entire history of, that, of those tribes. Okay, so in First and Second Kings tells us that every Israelite king followed in the sins of Jeroboam. And that Ahab was remembered as Israel's wickedest king. He was the worst king and his wife, he and his wife Jezebel, they promoted Baal worship in Israel and the northern kingdom never abandoned this idolatry. They never abandoned this uh, syncretism and this pagan worship. And you will find that in 1 Kings 16, 29 through 33. says in verse 32, it says that Ahab erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And in many ways, the southern tribe Judah was no better, even though they worshiped in the, in the temple in Jerusalem. They also you know, were doing, involved in syncretism and idolatry, plagued the southern kingdom. You, now, you did have a handful of uh, godly kings who reigned in Judah, but a majority of them neglected to walk in the ways of David, their father, and do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So idolatry, social injustice, and disregard for the Lord's commands were problems in both the southern tribes and the northern tribes, Israel and Judah. And so we know from if you've been in the um, prayer meetings, we've been reading through Deuteronomy 28. And so we know from Deuteronomy 28 through 30 that the Lord made a covenant with the nation and that uh, disobedience to that covenant would bring about covenant curses. So in various places throughout the 12 minor prophets, we see the Lord 
would mete out these covenant curses by exercising his sovereignty over creation, over history, and over the nations surrounding the people of Israel. So in Amos chapter 1, verse 2, and in Joel chapter 3, verse 16, when the, Lord, the Bible says, when the, when the Lord roars like a lion, his judgments extend beyond Israel to all the nations. Also throughout the 12 prophets, we see that the Lord is sovereign over nature. That in, so in the book of Jonah, God commands his creation in order to redirect his disobedient prophet to go to Nineveh. He tells Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jonah says, no, I'm going that way. And God throws a storm at him and gets him where he wants him to go. God, and so we see in the prophets that God sends droughts and locusts all to get the attention of his rebellious people. Furthermore, the Lord also directs the kings and the armies of the nations of the world around Israel to accomplish his purposes and to execute his judgments. During Micah's and Hosea's prophetic ministry, we see Assyria. We know that Assyria was called the rod of Yahweh's anger and that the, and King Cyrus of Persia was the Lord's shepherd and his anointed one. And during the ministries of Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk, that Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is depicted as the Lord's, the Lord God's at his servant. All the way through and all throughout the 12 minor prophets, we see that the destruction of Israel, Judah, Edom, and Nineveh were not simply should not be simply looked at as geopolitical events, but they were called days of the Lord by the prophet. So in these days, we know from history, from reading biblical history, that rather than repent and turn to the Lord, the people would turn to other solutions in, in response to these judgments. So the Lord would provide them one final opportunity for both Israel and Judah to return to him, but Second Kings 17, 13, to, 13 through 18 reminds us that the people of Israel would not listen and they became obstinate like their ancestors who did not believe the Lord their God. So rather than repent and turn to the Lord, King um, Hoshea, what he did was he made a pact with Egypt and he re, in, in order to try to get from underneath the thumb of Assyria. And when the Assyrian king found this out, he took this King Hoshea prisoner and he marched on Samaria. That was about 725 B.C. Three years later, the city fell. The Israelites were taken captive. And Samaria became a, a Syrian province. And, we, and you find all of this information out in, in, throughout the books of Amos and Hosea. And Judah, in the same way, fell at the hands of the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, you see this in 2 Kings 17. They did not keep the commands of the Lord, but lived according to the customs of the people around them. So I'll say all that to say this, that this is the historical context that the 12 minor prophets ministered in. This is, the, this is what was going on in history when these prophets were prophesying. They were among God's stiff-necked, hard-headed, and idolatrous people. So what's amazing about this is how the Lord, in his kindness, uses the 12 minor prophets to turn people away from military and political solutions to the disasters they were facing and to help them recognize that the only way that they would survive was to repent and to turn to the Lord. So the Lord's sin in these prophets was an act of grace. Many times you hear, I've heard many sermons over the years about Jonah when Jonah was 
being rebellious, rebellious and, and ran away, and the Lord pitched a storm at him, and people talk about that as if it's not gracious. It is a gracious act if you are falling into sin and the Lord comes after you. The worst thing God can do is leave you in your sin. Amen? So sadly, we know from history that the people did not return. Nevertheless, what we learn from the ministry of these 12 minor prophets is that the Lord is long-suffering, the Lord is gracious, the Lord is patient, and through these 12 prophets, he calls his people over and over and over again through repentance. Haggai 2.17 says, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hell, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. In Amos 4.6, the Bible says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me. Like I say, the historical period that the 12 minor prophets ministered in came to an end without Israel ever experiencing the full restoration of the Lord that he promised to his prophets in connection to his covenant promises. So the prophets preached judgment. So when the prophets, the Lord sent these prophets, they would be preaching judgment on the basis of the Mosaic covenant. Okay? But they would offer hope on the basis of the obedience to this covenant, which we know they don't ever do, the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants. So this hope of return, of renewal and restoration is also an important component of the message of the 12 prophets. They didn't just, it wasn't just always gloom and doom. They also preached about eventual restoration, hope, and return. So Malachi announced that the day of the Lord that in the day of the Lord that he would send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. That's Malachi 4, 5. Signifying that another time of great judgment would, precedes, would precede Israel's ultimate restoration. And then in the New Testament, when that era opens, thank you. The, the era opens with John the Baptist announcing the arrival of God's kingdom and of Jesus, the Messiah, who would ultimately fulfill all of these messianic prophecies that the prophets were giving us. So again, despite this disappointing history, the promises of salvation and restoration for Israel and the nations would not ultimately fail. The Lord would, in time, overcome even the unbelief of his own people and bring his promises to pass. So in addition to knowing the world of the prophets, it's important for us to know the work of the prophets. We'll be answering the question, what role do the prophets fulfill? So that brings us to the next point, the work of the 12 minor prophets. So it's important. I went through all of that so you would know. You need to know, you need to understand what's going on historically in that time to some degree. I can only, we can only do so much given our time frame, but you need to know that the minor prophets are being sent in a very turbulent, rebellious time. The, these are, they're God's people, but they're very rebellious. And the Lord is sending them as a means of grace in order to call the people back to, back to him. So the primary role of the prophets was to proclaim the word of God in relationship to the covenants God made with his people. The prophets 
acted almost like uh, covenant enforcers, so to speak. And a vast majority of the content of the prophet's messages were prompted by the covenants God made with his people. So the message the 12 prophets preached was a message of blessing for obedience to the covenants and curses for disobedience. And all of this is consistent with the messianic, I'm sorry, with the Mosaic covenant. So although the prophets may have, some of the prophets may have refined or extended the details of covenant faithfulness or fulfillment, the messages that each of these prophets, they weren't preaching anything new. The basis for all of their warnings and destruction and exile and promises and renewal and restoration were rooted in the promises of the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the Abrahamic covenant. So even when one of the 12 minor prophets may have framed the message in a new or innovative way, their primary intention was to get the people's attention and to remind them of the covenant obligations that God had set before them before it was too late. That makes sense to you? So even when a prophet would be talking about something in the future, it was always connected to the covenant in some way. So the work the minor prophets did in this way is defined as foretelling. So there's a difference between when you foretell is telling about the future and foretelling is preaching the heart of God to the people of God. So in fulfilling this primary role of foretelling, they also fulfilled the secondary role of foretellers of future things. But like I said, even those, even in those future prophecies, they're always connect, they're always within a context of the covenant obligation and fulfillment. So when the minor prophets foretold of details of what would happen in the future, those future events that they were prophesying about would be a result of Yahweh's covenant faithfulness or Israel's covenant disobedience. That being the case, the minor prophets were mostly, mostly concerned with the Mosaic covenant, which was established in Mount Sinai, renewed, in Moab and enforced through the words and the warnings of the prophets. That makes sense to you? So they would prophesy about a lot of things, future things, always connected to one of these covenants. They would, um, but a bulk of the work was them turning people back to faithfulness, covenant faithfulness to the Mosaic covenant so that they would not have to deal with the curses that came along with violating that covenant. Okay, so within the structure of the Mosaic Covenant, the laws functioned as the terms of Israel's obligation. So in return for corporate obedience to the law, the Lord God obligated himself to bless Israel. And you find this in Deuteronomy 28, and also God prophetically uh, predicted that they weren't going to, he knows they're not going to, obey. Right before in Deuteronomy chapter 29 and 30, right before uh, Moses dies, he calls Joshua and Moses into the tent and he commands Joshua to be faithful because he says, as soon as Moses dies and you cross over, these people, they're going to be unfaithful. 
So he knows beforehand what he's dealing with, but yet in his grace and his mercy, he consistently calls his people back to faithfulness through his prophets. So what God promised through Moses, the minor prophets simply reinforced by actively proclaiming a message that preceded them. And that message was simply choose life or death, blessings or cursings. They're just repeating the same things over, over and over again. So the work of the minor prophets consisted chiefly, primarily, of calling God's people back to covenant conformity and back to the knowledge of Yahweh. And like I said earlier, this work was accomplished in two main roles as either foretellers or foretellers. So as foretellers, what the minor prophets did was they preached. They struggled with all of their might to call Israel back to covenant conformity, back to the knowledge of God, and as foretellers, the minor prophets were acting as covenant enforcers. One commentator, J. Daniel Hayes, labeled the minor prophets as God's prosecuting attorneys. That's the label he gave them. So as foretellers of prophets, what they did was they called out Israel for their sins and covenant breaking. They called out the leadership, they called out the lay people, everybody. Nobody was exempt. Everybody was in trouble, okay? So as foretellers or covenant enforcers, the prophets proclaimed judgment unless the people turned to God and repented. And as, these pro- and as prosecuting attorneys, they brought an indictment against Israel that re- revolved around these five main areas. So they would, they're preaching, calling the people back to covenant faithfulness and acting as, so to speak, covenant enforcers or... or um, Prosecuting attorneys, they, they were indicting Israel. You're sinning against the Lord. You're breaking the covenant. You're violating the covenant. And there was five primary areas that they did this in. It was idolatry, social injustice, violence, hypocritical ceremony, ceremonialism, and spiritual apathy. Those are the five main um, areas now, obviously, there's overlap between those sometimes when they preach or when they would indict the people. Sometimes there's other things, but primarily, generally speaking, anytime you hear the prophets preaching and calling the people to repentance, they're dealing with one of these five areas. Idolatry, social injustice, violence, hypocritical, ceremonialism, and spiritual apathy. So in terms of idolatry, the minor prophets often use the imagery of spiritual adultery. Whenever they spoke out against Israel's constant, constant engagement with idols of the foreign people around them, these idols included Baal and Asherah and a bunch of other false gods. This sin was, pri- was the primary, was the main catalyst that brought about the wrath of God upon the nation. Thou shalt have no other God before me is the most basic reflection of covenant faithfulness. If you don't get that that part right, you're going to mess everything else up. All right? So the Lord is greatly concerned about idolatry. He's greatly concerned about this. And this fact floods and permeates all of the message of all of the 12 of all the 12 minor prophets but Hosea the book of Hosea 
is the one that most richly captures the heart of God on the matter of idolatry. If you want to find out how much God is displeased with idolatry, read the 12 minor prophets, especially Hosea. It paints the, the best picture for you. In terms of social injustice, God was concerned for the poor. Now, his concern for the poor is not necessarily social equality. He's not trying to redistribute wealth and make everybody have the same amount of money. That's not his concern for the poor. But his concern is for biblical justice. So the prophets made it abundantly clear that God hates corruption. God hates all forms of corruption. He hates corruption in religious institutions. He hates corruption in the family. He hates corruption in business. He hates corruption in the church. He hates corruption. God hates ill-gotten gains and, and unjust scales and ill-gotten gains made at the expense of poor people, ill-gotten gains made at the expense of the powerless. And the aspects of justice that the prophets proclaimed included care for the poor, care for the widows, care for the orphans among them, honesty in trade, honesty in business, in business transaction, in truth, in litigation. No bribes. God hates it when, when judge it, judges would take bribes because justice is being averted for money. Whether you're rich or you're poor, and if the judge is not being just, God hates that. So, although virtually all 12 of the prophets reference some aspect of this concern for justice, the prophets who spoke the most against social injustice are Amos and Micah, those two. Also, the third uh, aspect, primary area that they, that they dealt with was violence. Now, although the, the world, the ancient world, was uh, often harsh, the prophets made it clear that excessive, unjustified violence would not go unpunished by the Lord. So God's indictment against violence was often in combination with injustice. And, but sometimes it focused independently on, like, the revelry of the act itself. So, so God, God, basically, God hates it when you use violence to rob and steal and overpower people, right, to enrich yourself. But he also hates when people do violence for the sake of violence. Okay, so if you see a fight and you get popcorn and throw a party, he don't like that. That's not his, that's not his, his MO. He doesn't want his people celebrating violence in that way. Okay, so the prophet spoke out against violence both in Israel and in Judah as well as in the surrounding nations. Also, um, the fourth area is hypocritical ceremonialism. Okay? Now, ironically, even though Israel and the nation, would, they would blatantly disregard the law in the matters of justice and idolatry, these same people were willing to perform all the ceremonial acts that the Bible said they should perform. Right? But they only did it as a way to justify themselves. So the prophets did not, listen to me, they did not charge Israel with wrongdoing because they kept the law, the ceremonial law. Okay? Rather, he charged Israel 
in light of their hypocritical attitudes in assuming that just because they, would, they were devoted to these ceremonies that that would somehow pardon them of idolatry. So basically it's like, oh, I could be idolatrous, I could have Asher and Baal and all this stuff over here. All I got to do is just give Yahweh a couple prayers and I'm good. Ceremonial ritualism. Amos and Micah especially highlight Israel's hypocrisy associated with ceremonial devotion in light of or in the face of injustice and idolatry. That's Amos and Micah. Also, um, spiritual apathy is the fifth area that they mainly dealt with. Is, uh, so in the post-exile prophet, so you got the exile into Babylon, you know, Daniel and the lion's den. Y'all know that? Okay, so that's during the Babylonian exile. And then they come back, right? They're, they come back under the direction of Ezra and Nehemiah, right? And then he sends post-exile prophets, that's Haggai and Malachi, to highlight the spiritual apathy of the people, calling them to reconsider their misplaced priorities. So the, so the, the temple is destroyed, and they spend 70 years in exile. They come back. The, the Lord has graciously supplied them with all the supplies and the protection that they need to start rebuilding this temple. They come back. They, they kind of start to rebuild the temple, and then they stop and start building their own houses. Their primary concern is not for the house of the Lord. Their primary concern is for their own selves. And so he got the Lord sends Haggai and Malachi to deal with their spiritual apathy. So although spiritual apathy was a condition saturating all of society, all of Israel was guilty of this, the ones who came back, um, the prophets would mainly deal with or start with the spiritual leaders of Israel in this area because um, apathy, spiritual apathy was, I'm sorry, spiritual guidance was given to the priests, so therefore it starts from the top down. So he dealt mainly with those men who were in charge in that area, and you find that in Malachi. So then that moves us again to, on to how the prophets worked as foretellers. So you have Fourth tellers, then you have four tellers. I'm still under the first, um, I'm, I'm sorry, under the section of work of the prophets. So, at, so just to recap real quick, so the work of the prophets, they mainly do their work as either forth telling, preaching to the heart, preaching the heart of God to God's people, or foretelling, that's talking about future events, okay? So as, um, as forth tellers, the prophets spoke about indictment, calling people out for their sins, and calling people back to covenant faithfulness. As foretellers, the prophets spoke about future events in relationship to the covenants. Okay? So as I stated earlier, the prophets spoke about indictment and calling people out for their sins, but they would announce, like, distant predictions revealing God's plan for restoration and covenant fulfillment. So again, when I say it would... so you. I'll get into this. Hold on. So I'm sorry. So the, as foretellers, the prophets announced the future in reference to sometimes judgment, sometimes blessing, sometimes uh, it would be for that time and other times it would be distant future and eschatological, right? So as foretellers, 
their prophecy can be generally characterized in three areas. You have near-term fulfillment, middle-term fulfillment, and far-term fulfillment. I know this is all sound technical. It's going to make sense to you in a couple minutes. Just, just bear with me, okay? So near-term fulfillment would be a prophecy that came to pass within or shortly after the lifetime of the prophet or the original audience, okay? So near-term prophecies usually involve announcements of judgment and various aspects of soon-coming exile. That would include things like Samaria, the destruction of Samaria, the destruction of Jerusalem. However, there were near-term prophecies that often related to destruction of surrounding nations around the people. And you see that in Obadiah, the book Obadiah, and Nahum. Also, near-term prophecies, they, they were often expressed with, with a certain level of condition to them. So, depending on whether or not the, the people who were being preached to the audience would repent upon hearing this prophetic call, this near-term announcement of judgment, the, the, that uh, prophecy could be diverted or, or deferred. I was about that, deferred. So you see in Jonah, when Jonah gets sent to Nineveh, the people repent, and then God relents temporarily, and then eventually he comes back, and they're destroyed. So it's delayed. Also, uh, middle-term fulfillment. These are prophecies that are fulfilled centuries later after being spoken by the prophet, and also, although they're fulfilled long after the original audience passed away, from our perspective, they would be in the past. So from the perspective of the people who heard them and the prophet, it's distant future. For us, it's past. And of course, the most common prophecies, middle-term prophecies, would be, the, would be fulfilled in the coming of Christ. You find that in Micah 5 too. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, who's coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So the prophecies, messianic prophecies, hundreds of years in front of the prophet, history to us. And then far-term fulfillment, these would entail prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled even from our perspective. Okay? Now, these are eschatological. Now, what that does not mean is that you should be reading USA into unfulfilled far-term prophecies. That makes sense to you? You don't look for, when you see an eagle, that's not the United States, right? Don't make the mistake of reading people of God equals United States. You, you start misinterpreting the Bible that way. So far-term prophecies involve God's future judgment on the nations, we see this in Joel and Zephaniah, along with the blessings of a future Davidic kingdom. See that in Amos chapter 9. So that brings us to our third section, the words of the prophets. So, so far we dealt with the, the, the world of the prophets, the historical setting that the prophets were in, the time, the rebellion of the people, the, the work of the prophets, how they operated, either through foretelling or forthtelling, these five areas of indictment that they typically dealt with, and then when they would be forthtelling what the, um, those three types of prophecies. 
Now, this third section is the words of the prophet. So the words of the prophets, the prophets were charged with waking people, God's people, out of their spiritual stupor. They communicated God's message with, the prophets communicated God's message with vivid and shocking language most of the time. The prophets' messages were communicated not only by what they said, but also how they said it. The language that they used was powerful and full of imagery. And um, like we say, foretelling is preaching the heart of God to the people of God. So what that means is that poetic or prophetic literature is meant to speak to the heart as well as to the mind. Okay, so therefore, it shouldn't be a surprise to you that prophets usually or typically address their audiences using poetry. Okay, so poetry facilitates this type of function a little better than regular prose does. So what that means for us is, is that when we read the 12 prof, minor prophets, we should have an eye to read poetry like po- you read poetry like you read poetry. Does that make sense to you? So if we don't do that, we run the risk of missing the whole point of what the prophet is trying to say. So poetry tends to communicate emotion a lot better than prose does. It facilitates a response of the heart a lot better to the reader. So the Bible says that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so the words of the prophet, and when they use poetic language, is like the tip of that blade penetrating deep into the heart of the person that was listening. So what makes the the, the words of the 12 prophets so powerful and compelling is all of this rich imagery, the metaphors, figures of speech, the snappy language, the focused repetition, irony, sarcasm, and Hebrew wordplay. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of examples of metaphors that are used in the prophets. So without the, throughout the 12 minor prophets, um, Hosea, again, is probably best known for the rich use of metaphor. In the pages of Hosea, we see uh, God is pictured as a jealous husband, a frustrated shepherd, a destructive rot, a ferocious lion. He is pictured as a healing physician, a doting parent, a regenerating dew, and a flourishing tree. At the same time, Israel is described as an unfaithful wife, a silly dove, a faulty bow, a wayward donkey, and an unproductive tree. And often metaphors in Hosea demonstrate the contrast between what God is like and what his stubborn, stiff-necked people are like. And they use, they use poetic language to do this, not technical, analytical language, but rather the language of imagery and metaphor so we would understand it better. So like all Hebrew poetry... If you know anything about Hebrew poetry, you know that Hebrew poetry is to the point, it's terse, short on words, but long in power, and that repetition is a a familiar feature in in all Hebrew poetry, and that's the same in the Minor Prophets. So Hebrew poetry is sometimes called, I'm sorry, this repetition is sometimes called parallelism. It's almost like um, they just keep saying the same thing over in different ways. It's like a you ever watch boxing it's like a boxer just giving you a one-two combination boom boom over and over again wearing down the opponent and then eventually it, it escalates to get the knockout so listen to Micah 5 10 I want you to hear this it says 
And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortune. I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you and you shall bow down no more to the works of your hand. So the, the repetition of these words and phrases used in a variety of ways in the minor prophets, what they, use, what they do is they kind of intensify and heighten the rhetoric to make it hit harder. So, for instance, this repetition is, this, there's a statement that's being used all throughout in the book of Amos, and the statement is, yet you did not return to me. So what that does is that it brings a certain kind of unity and intensifies Amos' indictment. So in each, when you're reading through Amos, you see this statement and you start to sense Israel's guilt is building and building and building because you see God is constantly over and over and over again coming after these people. And then finally, in, in Amos chapter 4, you get to verse 12, he says, he's, at this point, he's like, okay, you did not return to me. I did this. You did not return to me. I did this. You did. And then in verse 12, you get, all right, Israel, prepare to meet your God. So you see this repetition over and over again so that it intensifies it. Also in Zephaniah includes numerous examples of catchwords. Some of them are apparent. You see them in Hebrew. Some of them not so much because of the translation. And you see them. In English, you see words like punish, return, plunder, shame, and gather over and over and over and over again. Where you see these repeated phrases throughout Zephaniah, I will sweep away. You see the face of the earth, the fire of his jealousy, and many, many references to the day of the Lord. So every one of the 12 prophets, the 12 minor prophets, contain these repeated words and phrases, but each of them do it in a little different way to give the books a di uh, distinct flavor. You also see the use of sarcasm. You see the use of irony. Things all throughout the, the language of the prophets. This should not shock you due to the fact that there is very much irony in the book of the 12 prophets. So the most prominent would be in the book of Jonah where Nineveh's repentant, Nineveh heard Jonah preach and turned. One time, he sends him one prophet, Nineveh turns. He's been, pre he's been sending prophet after prophet after prophet after Israel, his own people, and they don't turn. Now, who would you expect to turn? The people that he freed from Egypt or these people, the Assyrians? So there's this irony. So you shouldn't be surprised when you hear the Lord use irony. Also, you hear... Um, we could say, in a sense, that God is a God of a poetic justice, so to speak. The minor prophets contain this message clear. In, in Amos chapter 6, so Amos is indicting the people, right? And what he does is, in his indictment in Amos 6 of these notable people, he calls them notable people of the first. He calls them the first of the nations. They're in first place. You're on the top of the heap, Okay. You anoint yourselves with the finest of oils. Then he declares, at the judgment, you're going to be first in line. So you're first now in oppressing these people. You put yourself first in front of all these people. When you go to exile, you're going to be first in line. 
So the minor prophets also use wordplay to communicate their messages. So what wordplay is is just a, a variation of um, it's a variation of repetition. And it's mixed with irony and poetry. You see this in, in Jonah. Now, sometimes it's hard to see this because the words are um, in Hebrew. So they have to translate them. So we kind of miss this. But they, so it's when you take a word. Wordplay is when you would take a word, the same word, but a, a word has semant, different semantic meanings. So we use that same word over and over and over and over and over again but you have different meanings. So I heard it in a song like this. This is how it would go. Jesus Christ was God embodied in a body so we could be one body. Nobody but him could have died and left no body. So that's an example of wordplay. You hear the word body being used in every possible semantic range, but they, but they have different meanings and is communicating a message. You see the same thing in Jonah 3, 10, 4 through 1. It says, when God saw what they did, the Ninevites, and how they turned from their evil, the word is ra'ah, turned from the evil way, God relented from the disaster, ra'ah again, and he said uh, that he said he would do to them, and he didn't do it, but this displeased ra'ah, that's that word again, Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So you see this word play over again. We just miss that sometimes because it's not, it's not in uh, our language. Also, um, how much time do I have? Been going for a while, okay. So this last part, unity of the prophets. I'm going to jump to the end. If you're following along on your paper, unity of the prophets. So often we think of the prophets as 12 disconnected books. They don't have anything to do with each other. It's not true, okay. So Augustine is believed to be the first person to have referred to these books as the minor prophets. But historically... Prior to him, the Jews would have referred to this as one collection of book, a book, an entire book, and called it the Book of the Twelve. So they recognized it as a single literary work, a single literary book. And as early as 200 BC, that book of the Twelve was written as a single scroll. As a matter of fact, even the uh, Babylonians in the Talmud referenced this Twelve as a single composition. And they treated it as one book. So one of the primary organizing principles of the Minor Prophets is, chrono is chronology. So six of the 12 books have references to kings and times, so you can kind of know where you are. But also, in, a, in addition to chronology, is common themes, connecting words, and they play a role in how the prophets are laid, or, you know, in, in order in the Bible. So for example, throughout the Minor Prophets, the words and the phrases that's used at the end of one writing are reappear in the beginning of the next one. So, for example, uh, certain words in the Minor Prophets indicate that an individual book are meant, that two books are meant to be read together. So, uh, Hosea concludes with a promise that the Lord will restore Israel to the land after the exile and that the Lord will bless his people with uh, agricultural fertility, right? And it says that the Lord will provide an abundance regarding grain, vines, and, and wine. And then in the opening of Joel, which follows that book, the prophet is talking about this locust plague that has come to the land as judgment from the Lord. And the locusts have devoured grain, wine, and the grapevine. 
So it's meant to be read one after the other, right? And so then at the end of Joel, it says this, the Lord will roar from Zion and raise his voice from Jerusalem. And as he comes in judgment to judge the nations to deliver Israel, that's Joel 3.16. That same expression that depicts the Lord as a roaring lion is what opens up Amos chapter 1, verse 2. So then the, and then the concluding at the end of Amos in chapter 9 includes a promise that Israel will possess the remnant of Edom. And then the next book, Obadiah, immediately follows and it consists of an a oracle of judgment against Edom. So you see the, end, the phrases at the end of the one book leading to the end of the next one, the beginning of the next one. So also you have these um, unifying themes that go across the prophets. So they, and they usually consist of Israel's failure to repent uh, in response to the prophetic word, the day of the Lord, broken and restored covenant, and most importantly, the promise of a new David. Okay? So I'm going to jump ahead here for the sake of time. But the 12 minor prophets tell this story of this broken and this restored covenant between the Lord and between Israel. Like I said, the prophets were the Lord's prosecuting attorneys. They were indicting Israel and Judah for their covenant unfaithfulness. And despite all of these judgments and curses that the Lord had promised to them, the Lord would remain enduringly committed and faithful and gracious to his covenant people and to his covenant promises. So in Hosea 11, 8, 9, the Lord asks this question, how can I give up on you? How can I give up on you? In Amos 9, 8, the Lord warns that he would destroy Israel from the face of the earth. But couched in that warning, he says, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. Right? So after the exile, the Lord brought the people back to the land and promised that he would bless them and rebuild the temple and renew their covenant commitment to him. And the return from exile anticipated an even greater return of future, in the future when the Lord would fully restore all his people, Jew and Gentile, and all the nations would be included in this blessing. And the most important connecting theme is the promise of this new David. So the restoration of Israel would also include the fulfillment of the Lord's covenant to establish the throne of David forever. And some of the most important messianic prophecies in the Old Testament are found in the 12 prophets. So after the collapse of the Davidic throne, the Lord would restore the, the, the Davidic dynasty and raise up a new David over his people. We find that in Hosea 3.5 and Amos 9.11-12. through 12. The future king, we know from Micah 5.2, would come from Bethlehem just like David and would bring peace to Israel by extending his rule over all of the nations, not just Israel. So although we read the minor prophets as 12 distinct men with 12 distinct ministries, the scriptures present them as a cohesive account of the Lord's dealing with his people. Over three centuries of Old Testament history, the Lord warns Israel, the Lord warns Judah through the minor prophets, through various days of the Lord, and that these judgments ultimately would come to pass because the people were unresponsive, but, praise God, these judgments are not the end of the story. The Lord in his grace and in his mercy remains committed to his people and to his covenant promises.
So the history of failure, disobedience, and judgment would give way to this future day of the Lord where God would judge the nations and restore Israel, restore his people, return them from exile, and place his king, his future king, his Davidic king over the nation. So this is what Zechariah prophesied, that the Lord would extend his mercy both to the nation of Israel, to the house of David, and would make this Davidic king like God. This Davidic king that he was installing was going to be like God and it would lead his people. That's Zechariah 12, 8 through 14. He also proclaimed that the Lord would cause both Israel and the house of David to mourn at the fact that they had rejected their Messiah. They pierced their Messiah. That's Zechariah 12.10, and Hosea declared that the children of Israel shall return, seek the Lord their God, and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So while there are numerous themes that we could go over running throughout the minor prophets, they ultimately point us to a great king, to our great king, whose majesty shines far greater than any king that Israel has ever known, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's the one who ultimately fulfills all of these messianic prophecies. I want you to hear the word of the Lord in Zechariah 9.9. says, greatly, I'm sorry, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and Mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because the blood of my covenant is with you, I will set your prisoners free. Amen, church? Jesus is both the son of David, the promised son of David, and the eternal son of God whose reign will never end and who set these captives free. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you, God, that you would be so kind and gracious to rebellious, stiff-necked people, O oh God, that you would not leave us to our own devices, but you would Come after a people, O oh God, who, whose desire and their heart would be far from you, Lord, but you would, in your grace and mercy, God, come after them, O oh Lord. So, God, we pray that you would help your church, God. We are prone to wander and stray away from you like these people. But, God, by your spirit, you will keep us, O oh Lord. We thank you. We bless you for your word. It's in the holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. All right, so can I get you to please stand for the benediction? So next week, I believe Vladimir, Vladimir is doing Hosea. So for the, for the next few weeks, I just did an overview. And so then we'll be tackling each individual book so it won't be so like drinking from a fire hydrant. All right, so here's the uh, benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless, before the presence of his glory with great joy, 
To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. You are dismissed.